Hey, welcome to the sermon series from Life Church Green Bay. It's our mission to bring the life-giving message of Jesus to the 920 and beyond. We're so glad you're here. If this is your first time joining us, we want to do life with you. While you're listening, fill out our hello card on our website so we can connect with you. Visit lifechurchgreenbay.com forward slash hello to fill it out. Make sure to check the I'm new here and online options while filling out the card. Again, we're so glad you're with us today. Here's this week's message. All right, open your Bibles to the book of Exodus. If you don't have a traditional Bible, but you'd like one and you're comfortable in raising your hand, one of my friends will bring you one. You can either borrow that or you can keep it. It's our gift to you. You can also take your smart device and open up the version, or it's also called the Bible app and all the notes and scriptures. Everything except for pictures have already been uploaded. You will also put everything up on the screen right behind me to make it as easy as possible. If you're watching us online at one of our other sites or at one of our services at the Brown County Correctional Facility, I love you guys and so glad that you're a part of our family. Give a little special shout out to my friends in the D in Detroit at our site there and Anita and Mike and the crew over there. So, so excited that you guys are a part of our family. There's just something about us that loves to celebrate success. We idolize, immortalize, even deify the people we watch, listen to, or follow. Celebrities, actors, actresses, or athletes, bands, singers, or musicians, models, or influencers. We love a great success story, a meteoric rise, a story of someone who comes out of nowhere, whether it's Billie Eilish exploding onto the scene after recording songs, with her brother in her bedroom, or for us here in Green Bay, Rasul Douglas being signed mid-season and having like a Pro Bowl caliber season after being released by multiple other NFL teams. We love watching those stories. We love talking about them. And I think in many ways, we identify with those stories. We identify with those people. We, we maybe even take credit for them a little bit. Like, oh, I followed her on social before anyone had ever even heard of her. Or, bro, I knew that he was a baller. He was a great player while he was still in college. We somehow connect ourselves to those people. There there isn't much we love in America more than the success of an underdog. Uh, The Rudy Rudigers of the world, who after making one play was carried off the field at Notre Dame under the watchful eye of touchdown. Jesus showered in chants of Rudy. We love stories where someone no one expected to succeed is thrust into a moment of glory. What we don't love is when someone we expected to succeed doesn't. When someone falls in a blaze of glory, we we don't want to identify with those stories. We don't want to identify with those people. We don't want to connect ourselves to those people. We almost never take credit for them. We, We loathe stories where Someone everyone expected to succeed is thrust into a moment of shame. We, we love being surprised by success, but hate being surprised by failure. But I'd like to propose to you today, and hopefully it'll be a theme throughout this series, that just as no one ever succeeds alone, no one ever fails alone. I want to talk about that today in a message we're calling Between Two Rivers. Let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you for my friends in this place. God, in this place, on this side of the screen, and wherever they find themselves on the other side of the screen. God, thank you for the people who you've made a part of our family. I pray blessings on them. I pray that every person who hears this message would be encouraged, people who are suffering 
people who are struggling, fighting, trying to figure out how it is to make it from point A to point B, I pray that our hearts and our minds would be melted, that they would be molded, that they would be made to be less like us and more like you in Jesus' name. Amen. There's certainly no shortage of success stories in America, is there? From inventors to influencers, this nation was founded and has been formed by people who followed a dream that didn't only change their lives, but changed ours too. Like Bill Gates, pioneering the personal computer in a garage in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and the explosion of influence that springboarded him to becoming one of the richest people in the world, and for a period of time, put a personal PC in almost every home in America. Unfortunately, though, there's also no shortage of stories of failure in America, people whose fall didn't only change their lives, but changed ours as well, like Kurt Cobain pioneering grunge in a garage in Seattle and the explosion of success that made him one of the biggest rock stars in the world and the implosion of influence that spiraled him into distress and depression that for a period of time made him the poster child for suicide. Success and failure, they're so closely related. They're separated by such a thin line. They're often separated by just a few decisions one way or the other. And the bigger the success or the bigger the failure, the harder it is for the man in the street to relate to it. But can I tell you, you and I are closer to either than we think. We are closer to either than most of us want to own or even admit. What's really sad to me is that we've seen lots of people rise and we've seen lots of people fall. But it's not very often that we see someone rise after the fall. Maybe it's because just as fast as some people jump on the bandwagon of someone's success, those same people jump off that person's bandwagon even faster when that person experiences a failure or a fall from grace. And we're so definitive in our expulsion or our excommunication of people who have fallen or failed. But like I said in the promo of this series, my pastor Fulton Buntain, he used to say that failure is never final. Your fall doesn't have to be fatal. I'd actually like to make a case that those of us who've had a failure or who've had a fall but had the fortitude to pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, own our mistakes, admit our failures, and embrace the fall come back stronger than those who hadn't. They, we come back stronger than we did before. It's, it's the difference between Nixon and Lincoln. Uh, Nixon had tons of successes. I mean, by the age of 40, he had already achieved the rank of lieutenant commander with the United States Navy. He'd been elected to Congress and the Senate and become the vice president of the United States of America. As president, he opened up communications to China, reduced tensions with the former Soviet Union. He ended U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War. He established the EPA and OSHA. He started the war on cancer, and he oversaw putting a man on the moon. Then Watergate. And after that fall, we didn't hear much from him. In fact, we almost forget all of his successes because of failure. Lincoln, on the other hand, lost his job and his run for state legislature in 1832. 
He failed in business in 1834, lost his wife in 1835, had a nervous breakdown in 1836, was defeated for Speaker of the House in 1838, was defeated for Congress in 1843 and 1848. He was rejected for the Office of Land Manager in 1849, was rejected for Senate in 1854 and the nomination of Vice President in 1856. He lost another run for Senate in 1858, but then, I don't know if they just ran out of people, but in 1860, he was elected President of the United States of America. Talk about a rise after the fall. And I relate to that. I actually feel like I relate to both of those guys. I I, I feel like what's interesting is that because Nixon ended in failure, we don't remember any of his successes. But because Lincoln ended in success, we seldom remember any of his failures. It, It feels like my life was littered with rises and falls. I had the misfortune of being born into a rough environment. I, 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 you, I, you just, where, you, where you're born, you don't get to control that. I'm pretty sure that my neighborhood was fine when my parents moved there, but by the time I was born, it wasn't. My dad and his steadfastness had the attitude that I was here first, and so we just sucked it up. I grew up with all sorts of foolishness around me, violence and crime and drugs. And I went to a challenging school in elementary school. And I had a monumental moment in the first grade. And it sounds trite when you haven't lived it. You think, what could possibly happen in first grade that changed your life? All of kindergarten and halfway through the first grade, I got, I got bullied by the same kid. And when I say bullied, I mean that... Uh, he, he had a group of kids that he used to run around the, the, the playground with, and every day they would, they would catch me. They would surround me. And like you saw in the movies, you know, they, like one guy would push me to another guy to another guy until, until the one guy, the main bully guy, his name is Corey Rolls. I'll never forget his name for the rest of my life. He would like come out of nowhere and like cold cock me. And then they would just, they would just stomp me all of recess. And one day, halfway through the first grade, I just, I got sick of it. And I, I had like a John Wick moment, if you've seen that movie. You know, like, I don't mean I killed nobody because they killed my dog, but I'm talking about like, you know, when you have one of those moments where you kind of black out and you don't know what in the fire is going on. And so I just like blacked out and I snapped. And the, for the rest of my life through elementary school and kindergarten, uh, elementary school and high school, I, I and Corey Rose switched places. And I I went from being bullied to becoming the bully. I, went, I became a predator. I became a person who felt like I needed to, to keep myself out of trouble by putting other people in it. My whole life was surrounded by criminals. I mean, I had, uh, I had people in my family that, that were incarcerated. It just felt like that was part of my DNA, like it was gonna be part of my, my destiny. In eighth grade, I got a little break. And uh, I got invited to attend a charter school that they had just opened up to kids in my neighborhood. And me and my one best friend, we went to that school. We had to walk 45 minutes one way to get there. And, and to get there, we'd have to walk through these like uh, crazy nice neighborhoods. I'm talking about like multi-million dollar homes. And I remember I had two responses to walking through those houses. Number one, I wanted to rob them. <laughs> then number two, I thought, well, I don't want to rob them. I want to be them. 
And I would walk through these houses and they would motivate me. They would give me these dreams of what I could be someday, that I didn't have to be a convict, that I didn't have to be a criminal, I didn't have to be a, a drug addict or a drug dealer, that the, these people somehow became that some way. And so for four years, every day I would walk through neighborhoods and, and even though I didn't know God, God would expand these thoughts and these dreams in my life. In ninth grade, I met a guy who changed my life both for the good and for the bad. His name was Bob Miller. He was the varsity football coach, and he, he kind of took me under his wing, and, and he mentored me, and he coached me, and uh, he got me out of a lot of trouble. I would skip class, and he would get me out of that. I, I would cause trouble in the school, and he would go to the principal, and he would get me out of it, which I thought was amazing at the time, but later on, I would discover that it was starting a pattern in my life where if you were talented, people didn't care if you had integrity. And so people would cut corners and they would allow you to cut corners on the integrity pieces of your life as long as you could perform for them and as long as that performance stayed the course and as long as you didn't do anything that was so bad that it affected how people saw them, they would let you get away with whatever you wanted. I went to college, I was blessed, I was fortunate that I got to go to a great school on a football scholarship and the same thing happened. I was a I was a problem child, but they would let me off with stuff because they were like, bro, as long as you can perform, we'll keep giving you scholarship money and food money. And, and, and then one day I did something that was too far. At some point, everybody does something that's too far. And my roommate and I is from Seattle. He played uh, quarterback and, and we decided that we were going to rob somebody. And so we, we did that. We got caught. And some of you know the tidbits of this story. We got caught. I got sentenced to 15 years in the Minnesota State Pen, served 111 days, and walked out because of overcrowding. Long story short, I ended up at a little school in North Dakota that I didn't know was a Christian school, but it was a Christian school. The first guy that I showed up on campus and met, I asked him where I could buy dope, and he told me that I didn't need dope, I needed Jesus, but to me, I had just driven 18 hours, so I needed some dope. And so I went downtown, I bought a nickel bag of weed, I got smoked out in the dorm rooms of Trinity Bible College of the Assemblies of God. That was one of the times I got kicked out. I got kicked out of that Christian school two times. One was because I got high in the dorms, I didn't know that that was unacceptable. And, and after the second time that I got kicked out, I was singing at a friend's wedding and the president of the school was in the audience and he came up to me after the wedding and, and he said, bro, I didn't know that you could sing like that. And, and he said, I would love it if you would travel with me and before I preach at churches, if you would warm up the crowd and you would sing. And I said, I said, hey doc, uh, I don't go to school here anymore. They kicked me out, I got high in the dorm rooms. He said, let me take care of that. It was another example of if your talent is enough, they'll exchange your talent for their integrity. I, I went four years at that school. I, I, I really wasn't a great believer. I was just really talented. And my talent always made opportunities in places that my character couldn't keep me. And for years, I had success in, in ministry until, until my talent took me to a place that it couldn't sustain me. Uh, I took a church in Detroit and the, and the church was, uh, it was small, it was dying. The, the pastor before me had stolen three and a half million dollars before he walked out the door. The church didn't know about it. We had to figure out how to fix it, how to bring this thing back from the brink, how to have people not lose everything that they had invested. Man, we had board meetings every night 
for three and a half hours, five nights a week. It was the most taxing, toiling thing ever. And the lack of integrity in my life finally got to a point where Sonny couldn't take it anymore. And she came to me one day and she said, uh, I'm taking our kids and I'm leaving. I'm going to file for divorce. Listen, there's a lot of jobs you can have and get divorced. Like if your dentist is divorced, you don't go, I don't trust him to put a crown on my teeth. Can he put crowns on teeth? Cool. Whatever. It was personal life. Whatever, bro. When a pastor gets a divorce, you're like, nah, listen, Jack, (laughs) that's enough. And so I I went to my board of, of our church. And I said, hey, I uh, just want you to know, this, this is going to be my last Sunday. Um, Sonny's taking my kids. She moved to Florida with her parents, and, and uh, I think we're going to get a divorce. Hand to God, the board of that church. And let me explain why. That church, when we took it, was like 300 people, and in like five months, it went from like 300 people to 900 people, and it was booming, and people were getting saved every week, and they were tripping, and, the, and so the head of the board looked at me and he said, well, why do you have to resign? Can you, can you just stay? I said, maybe, maybe you didn't hear what I said when I came in here. Like, Sonny's left me. She's, she's filing for divorce. She took my kids. She's in another state. It was another example of your talent causing people to overlook the holes in your life. I couldn't do it, y'all. I just walked away. I said, I don't ever want to be in ministry. I want to be married more than I want to be in ministry. And so I went and got, grabbed my wife and grabbed my kids. And a friend of ours directed us to a counseling program in a little town maybe you heard of called Green Bay, Wisconsin. So we moved our family here to a, a house uh, that, that didn't have heat. I didn't have a job. Sunny didn't have a job. She got a job at a coffee shop. And I spent uh, six months with no job. I was a blogger, to be fair. That's what men call themselves when they're unemployed and are too embarrassed to admit it. I wrote exactly one blog and four people read it. I think it was me four times. But in those six months, can I tell you that I read this book cover to cover for the first time in my entire Christian walk. I had been a pastor for 15 years. I hadn't read the whole thing. I got to know my kids. I got to discover that I didn't need internet or I didn't need cable, that I really just needed Jesus. And I literally literally found Jesus at the bottom of a pit. I lost everything. I lost my money. I lost my reputation. I lost my cars. I lost my home. I lost everything. But I found my family and I found Jesus. And I, I, I sat in a in a living room with no heat in Green Bay in the middle of the winter, and I said to God, I don't ever want to go back into ministry, but but if you ever ask me to, I don't really care if we're successful. Uh, If I never pastor more than 100 people, but I have a good marriage and my kids love Jesus, then that's all I care about. Well, at the time, I was on the teaching team at a church in Houston, Texas of 20,000 people, (laughs) making over $100,000 a year, Speaking to a room that had 10,000 theater seats. It's easy to say to God, if I only pass around 100 people, God's like, oh, really? Because I got somebody who's fit to call you. And some cat from Green Bay called me back. He said, hey, remember you used to live here? Yeah, this is good. Yeah, got this church, pastor left. They're going to close it down. About 100 people. We want you to come. <laughs> so I did. 
December 17th of 2012, God just said, listen, I'm going to take you somewhere. I'm going to take you to the very place where you found health. I'm going to take you to the very place where you discovered that these people, they'll love you whether they know if you're talented or not. They're going to love you to the place of health. And so we came here. We had gone through this counseling program that was intense, that strips you down to the heart of who you are. We call it Journey to Wholeness. Back then, it was called Freedom Life Skills, and we discovered that every person has a moment of trauma that causes fixation in them or it causes them to become arrested in development in that one very trite moment in first grade when Corey Rolls and I switched places literally impacted my entire life. It caused me to become somebody who I wasn't, to do things I shouldn't do, to say things that I shouldn't say. And when that scab was peeled off, suddenly the power of the Holy Spirit rushed into my life. It's why the Apostle Paul says, and you shall be, re be restored by the renewing of your mind. And everything in my mind was switched and it was changed. And I, I spent the better part of six months really just studying people in the Bible, trying to find somebody who was great. And you know, I discovered that uh, People have a problem with people who fail. I was one of them. I lost all my friendships, all my relationships, except for two. Pastor Barry, who's here, and my friend Alan Griffin, who you've met many times. It was, I was left with two people in my life. And uh, I came to this realization that people just don't want to talk about failure. And I thought, why? So let's do a whole series about it. And Sonny goes, you're kind of running a risk where you're going to have like seven weeks of messages from people who failed, like had affairs and stole money and one of them murdered someone like that. Really? You're going to do that? That's risky. I go, I, why? Why is that risky? Everybody in here has failed. Every one of you has been a mess up. You've been a royal screw up most of your life. You don't want to admit it. You don't want people to know it. And so I said, who better than to bring a bunch of screw-up pastors who have fixed the problem and have come back? I mean, it's better than having their state farm agent come and talk to them from the stage. This is a guy who he's used to standing in front of people. And so we're going to have like seven weeks of people who are total screw-ups. And you know what? Some of you are going to get pissed off about it. And that's okay. And those of you who haven't read this book, because there's nobody in this book outside of Jesus who you'd want your daughter to marry. I'm just telling you, they're all mess-ups. Everybody, everybody in this book has done something stupid. They've murdered someone or stolen something or lied or sold their wife into prostitution. What, Abraham? Are you kidding me? She's your, it's your wife. She's your, oh, yeah, you can have her. There's just a bunch of losers in this book is all I'm saying. And so all of their stories are this. They were total screw-ups who God got a hold of and then the second half of their life is this rise out of obscurity. And so I thought, why don't we just spend a number of weeks talking about how you can figure out how to get out of your failure, how you can grab yourself in the bottom of your fall, and you can come to a place of success. And there's one particular guy in this book that I read about, and he, I really relate to him particularly in my rise after my fall, and it's Moses. And, and he lived his life between two rivers. The one where he was left and the one where he was led. He, he lived his life 
between the Nile, where he was left, and the Jordan, where he was led. Scriptures tell us that he lived to be 120 years old. And interestingly, his life is separated into thirds. And, and his rise, as we know it, didn't come until the final third of his life. And so some of you know the story, but let me just give you a quick rundown of it. In the second generation of Egyptian slavery of the Israelites, the Hebrew population was growing so rapidly that Pharaoh, who was the king of the world, who people thought was God on earth, became so paranoid with the possibility that should a war break out that the Hebrews would join with their Egyptian enemies and they would attack from within that he orders all of the midwives to kill any Hebrew boy that was born. But the midwives feared God more than they feared Pharaoh and they let the boys live. So enraged by the midwives' disobedience, Pharaoh orders every Egyptian citizen to throw every boy born to the Hebrews into the Nile. It is in the midst of this genocide that Moses is born. His mother hides him for three months, but when it becomes clear that she couldn't hide him any longer, she places him in a basket and floats him down the Nile, who, uh, while bathing Pharaoh's daughter, discovers the basket, takes Moses, and raises him as her son. And so for the first 40 years of Moses' life, he grows up in the Egyptian court, being raised as Egyptian royalty, learning their history, their religious practices, and becoming elite in their fighting styles. He was, however, aware <clears throat> that he was not Egyptian, that he was a Hebrew. So he had this juxtaposition of learning the Egyptian way from his Egyptian adopted mother and learning the Hebrew way from his Hebrew birth mother who Pharaoh's daughter had hired as a sort of nanny. And she, she taught him his Hebrew history, heritage, and a fear of God. There was a natural tension that had to have existed. That tension came to a head one day when, when he was about 40, and he saw one of his fellow uh, Hebrews being beaten by an Egyptian slave master. And in a moment of rage, he tries to take matters into his own hands and kills the Egyptian. This outburst would cost him everything that he'd known up to that point in his life. He's forced to flee Egypt in a clapback that Pharaoh would most certainly have sent his way, his flight took him across the Red Sea to a place called Midian where he meets Jethro, married Jethro's daughter, spends the next 40 years of his life working as a shepherd for his father-in-law where God taught him much needed lessons in patience, trust, and humility. In fact, the Bible says that he was more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. When he was about 80, after 40 years sitting in the Egyptian court being trained to be one of the greatest leaders on earth, and 40 years sitting in the wilderness learning lessons of humility, it was finally time for Moses to fulfill his calling. So God appears to him in a burning bush, says, I'm sending you to Pharaoh so that you can lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And most of you know what happened next because you saw the prince of Egypt after debating with God about his ability and being reunited with his brother Aaron, who would be his spokesperson. They returned to Egypt. Pharaoh refuses over and over. He's pummeled with plagues before he finally lets God's people go. He changes his mind. He pursues them to the Red Sea, which God miraculously parts for the Hebrews, then closes on the Egyptians. And the children of Israel then spend the final 40 years of Moses' life wandering and whining in the wilderness in what's one of the most frustrating stories in all of the scripture, much akin to raising teenagers. But in that story, I see four things, four things that Moses was. Moses was confused, abused, 
and refused before he ever was used. Let's flesh that out. Number one, he was confused. He was confused about his identity. Huh. Was he Jewish or was he Egyptian? I wonder if you've ever been confused about your identity. I know I certainly have, especially after I became a Jesus guy. I was the most confused about my identity after I became a Jesus guy. I'd lived my life with one foot in my past and one foot in my purpose. One, on one hand, I identified as a Jesus guy who was supposed to be loving, joyful, peaceful, kind, patient, faithful, gentle, under control. But on the other hand, I didn't want to stop being a thug. I didn't want to lose the identity of being an ex-con, of somebody who, if you cross the wrong way, might cut you. I didn't want people to think I was soft. And so every time God tried to do something great in me or through me, I would sabotage it. I would trigger because I was arrested in development. I was confused about my identity. Have you ever been confused about your identity? Number two, Moses was accused. He, he was accused of murder. And in the midst of those accusations, he ran. And I read this and I wonder what would have happened if rather than running, he would have stood his ground and owned his mistake. Like it wasn't even Pharaoh who accused him. It was a secondhand accusation. And in his fear of what Pharaoh would do, he made assumptions. Hmm. Assumptions have a funny way of arising in the midst of accusations, don't they? Have you ever felt accused? Of course you have. We've all felt accused. Accused, And just, uh, just as sure as I am that you have felt accused, I am equally sure that those accusations were secondhand. And that those secondhand accusations originated in hell. The book of Revelation tells us that Satan is our accuser. I wonder what would happen if you would stand your ground and face your mistakes rather than running. Some of you are on the precipice. You are in the midst of a mistake. You are in, on the precipice of a fall, and yet you are running. I guarantee you, because the book says it, you're going to get caught. It says, be sure your sin will find you out. She'll find that website. He'll find that money you spent. They'll find it on your cell phone. Your boss is going to find out. Be sure that your sin will find you out. What would happen if rather than running, you would stand your ground and own your mistakes. Number three, Moses was refused. His own people refused to listen to him. They questioned his ability, his sincerity. They called him a murderer, a traitor, a sellout. Have you ever had people, like your own people, refuse you, question your ability or your sincerity, hold your past against you? Like, who are you to tell me this? Like, you're just a this or you're, you're just a that. I remember when you were. But you know, even though they refused, Moses wouldn't relent. And he wouldn't relent because he knew the stakes were too high. He, he, he could see what they couldn't see. He knew that their lives depended on it. And guys, I get it, refusal stinks, it stings, but don't let your people's refusal cause you to relent because you can see what they can't see. You know that their lives, they depend on it. And so because of Moses' refusal to relent, finally, he was used used to usher God's people through the wilderness to the place of God's promise. He was used to lead God's people, watch this, through the same wilderness he had fled to. 
He was led to lead the people to cross the same sea he had to cross to get to Midian. He was uniquely qualified to lead them on this journey because he'd been where they were going. He knew the route and the requirements, the course and the challenges, the problems and the pitfalls because he'd experienced them in the rise after his fall. Because people who've had a failure or a fall but had the fortitude to pick themselves up, dust themselves off, own their mistakes, admit their failures and embrace the fall, come back stronger than before. And I wonder if that's you, like you're, you're here, you're, you're in the midst of it, you're, you're going through the fire, you're, you're wandering through the wilderness and you're running, you're fighting, you don't want to own it. What, what would happen? Can I promise you that there's not a person in here who hasn't either fallen, is falling, or is about to fall? We're all in those categories. And what the enemy wants us to think is that this book says that we have to be perfect. Actually, this book says that none of us are perfect. Actually, the book, Jesus says, none of us are even good. So if you put yourself in that perspective and you say, not only do I not need to be perfect, I don't need to have this whole thing figured out that I am going from here to here. And in the midst of my problems, in the midst of my pain, in the midst of my trials, and in my turmoil, if I would just own it. Like there's some of you who are in here today, I know this beyond a shadow of a doubt, there's some of you who are in here today, you're so fearful. You wake up every day with the constant weight of what would happen if people found out who you were. They're gonna find out who you are. Who better to, to write the narrative you or failure. There are people in your life, I promise you, who if you go to them and you admit your problems, you admit the porn that you're looking at, you admit the money that you're stealing, you admit the conversations that you're having on social media, if you just sit down and you just say, bro, listen, this has been going on six years and I've, I've been shooting this and snorting this and smoking this and you've been hiding it. You, you think they don't smell it on your breath? You think that the mouthwash in your car works? They already know. They just don't want to embarrass you. But at some point, the crap is going to hit the fan enough that they're going to do this and they're going to walk away. And they're not going to walk away because of your failure. They're going to walk away because of your weakness. But I promise you that just as much as there are people who, if you own your mistakes, are going to walk out on you, there are people that are going to walk headlong into the wind with you who will grab you by the arm and will say, you know what, let's go, bro. This, yes, yes, this is what I've been waiting for. It might just be two like me. I got canceled for so many speaking engagements, I wanted to change my cell phone number. But two guys grabbed me by the arms, said we're not gonna let you fall, we're not gonna let you fail. And you might have two, you might have one, but I promise you, if you would turn around Put your shoulders back, bow up, and own your... There's some conversation. I know I'm going long. There are some conversations that need to be had this afternoon. There are some marriages that are about to be rescued today because of honesty. Give each other credit. Give each other the benefit of the doubt. Because I promise you, most of us in this room, we feel just like Moses. We're confused. We've been accused. We've been refused, but God, he wants us to be used. If you feel those first three, don't lose heart, because not only are you on the precipice of a fall, you're on the precipice of a great comeback, 
because God works all things together for good of those who love him because there is a rise after the fall. Would you close your eyes all across this place? The first rise that we have to have is a rise of salvation. In the church, we call it salvation. God calls it a relationship. Be in relationship with God. You've got to own your mistakes. The Bible says that being in a relationship with God just takes two things. It takes confession and profession. That you confess that you're a sinner and you profess that God can change that. So I wonder if you're here today and you say, Sean, I'm a wreck. My life is in ruins. I've tried everything else. I don't know what else to do. But you know that you, you don't have the answer. The Bible says the answer is Jesus. And it's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to be perfect. But if you confess with your mouth that you're a sinner and profess that Jesus can change you, you now have hope. You have eternal life. So I wonder if you're here today and you say, Sean, I'm a, I'm a sinner. I'm not saved. I don't have a right relationship with God, but I'd like to have one before I leave here. We're going to give you the opportunity to do that. And here's how. In just a moment, I'm going to ask people to do two things. With nobody looking around, I'm going to ask people in a minute to raise their hand and make eye contact with me. Once you've made eye contact with me, you can put your hand down. That's gonna be your sign of a confession, saying, Sean, I'm a sinner, I need to be saved. Number two, I'm gonna ask for people in this place to repeat a prayer after me along with everyone else in this place. I'm not gonna center you out or make you walk an aisle, but if you repeat that prayer after me and you mean it in your heart, the Bible says that you will be saved. That's your profession, that God can save you. So with nobody looking around, I wonder if you're here and you say, Sean, I don't have a relationship with Jesus, but I'd like one before I leave this place. Would you raise your hand? Make eye contact with me. Thank you, thank you, thanks, thank you, thanks, thank you, thanks, thanks, thank you, thanks, thanks. Okay, I'm gonna ask everyone in here to say these words after me. Say, Jesus, I've sinned, but I don't want to anymore. Please forgive me. Come into my life. Change me. Make me different Make me new, be my Lord, and be my Savior, in Jesus' name, amen. Friend, if you prayed that prayer, we would love the opportunity to connect with you, to get to know you better, to help you in your relationship with the Lord, so you can either fill out the card that's in your seat back that says hello across the top, or you can scan the QR code on the seat back in front of you, or on the screen if you're at one of our other sites or online, just send us a message so that we can follow up. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes one more time before we receive the Lord's tithes and your offering. I wonder if you're here and you say, Sean, I am a believer, uh, but you are either in the midst of a fall or you're in danger of a fall. If that's you with nobody looking around, would you raise your hand so that I could pray for you in this place? Yep, y'all, man. Jesus, for so many people in this place who would say that they're in the middle of it, God, or they're about to be in it. God, I pray blessings. I pray peace. I pray that you'd give us restoration. I pray that you'd give them protection. Guard their hearts. Guard their minds. Surround them with heavenly angels of protection in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Still thinking about the message? Go follow our message recap podcast. Chew on that. The Chew On That podcast is a podcast where Life Church staff chew over the latest messages to dig deeper into our faith. Tap the link in the episode description to have a listen. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. We'll see you next week.